We're very excited about our opportunity for today and then the next two Saturdays. I was thinking back this morning about some sessions like this that we've had through the years and I can remember certain things that I was taught through teacher training sessions in every one of those sessions as far back as 20 years ago that, that I picked up something that was useful for me in, in studying God's Word and being able to present that. So I want us to recognize what a good opportunity that it is for us to be here. Uh, Brother Ian's here. He's put a tremendous amount of, of study and effort into to being here and leading these sessions. And so we're, we're thankful for his work and we want to thank every one of you for being here and for participating in this. As we have been announcing, this morning's session will end at noon. We'll have from 12 to 1 to eat lunch. We are going to open the fellowship hall. If you want to grab something and come back here and eat, You'd be welcome to do that, but we want to try to be back promptly at 1 o'clock for the afternoon session, and then we want to plan forward for the, the next two Saturdays as well to come back and take advantage of these opportunities. At this time, I believe we will start our, our assembly. And I'll ask Brother Mitch Price, if he will, to come up and lead us in prayer, and then Brother Ian will... We'll take the floor. Lord God in heaven, we want to first start by thanking you for the safety that you provided all of us in coming to this building this morning. Lord, we want to ask for the forgiveness of our sins, our shortcomings, our failures, everything that we struggle with on an individual basis. We ask that you'll strengthen us so we can do better in the future than we have in the past. Lord, we ask your guidance, your blessings on this meeting we're having here this morning. We ask that you'll calm Ian's nerves, give him a ready recollection of everything he wants to stay, say and present, and that he can do it in a way that is efficient, effective, and will be useful to everyone here from the youngest to the eldest. Lord, we thank you for this congregation that we have here in the brotherhood and, and around the brotherhood. We thank you for the numbers we have. We thank you for the young families that are wanting to serve you. We ask that, that you will be with them, strengthen them in, in the times that we're living in. And Lord, we thank you how, for how blessed we are in this nation, that we can, we can do things like this without fear of persecution, with in comfort, and we ask that that will continue, and if it is not going to be that way, Lord, we ask that you will give us the, the calmness and the demeanor to continue to worship you regardless of what's happening in the world around us. We thank you most of all, Lord, for Jesus and his death that makes everything that we're doing here today possible. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Brother Mitch. Appreciate that. 
Uh, I want to begin by saying a few things. Uh, firstly, this, this is great participation, and uh, I'm excited that there's so many people here. Uh, typically, when I do these type of sessions, it's, it's more in a close circle, and so there's a lot of study, uh, back and forth dialogue, and I'm only telling you that because since I'm standing up moving around, I'm probably going to get a little preachy, so I'm sorry for that. But that, that's it, just old habits die hard, I guess. So I may be a little preachy as I'm doing this. Uh, our plan is to go till about 10.45, and then we're going to start some Q&A. And we'll have some Q&A and allow the men to ask some questions one at a time. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. After that, we're going to take about a 10-minute break, give everybody a chance to get up, walk around, go to the restroom if you need to, come back for a second session, uh, probably go for another 35 or 40 minutes and then have some more Q&A and then we'll break for lunch. Uh, so about the Q&A, first off, if you do have a question, when you ask your question, please speak loudly and concisely so everyone can hear you. Uh, secondly, um, please keep your questions pertaining to the subject at hand. We have a specific purpose for what we're trying to do here today. We don't want to get off on rabbit trails and get distracted and that become the focus of our session. And so please keep your questions pertaining to each session. So uh, if we have questions after this first session pertaining to the material, go ahead and we'll, we'll try to address those questions. If you didn't get to ask your question about session one or session two, Lord willing, this afternoon, if we're running this afternoon, we'll have an extended period for Q&A. Uh, and I believe there's some note cards in the foyer. And so if you didn't get to ask your question during session one or two, uh, during the break, go back, get a note card, write that down, just set it up here on the communion table. We'll try to come back to that later. Okay. Okay. Just for clarity, you might mention we are going to maintain an assembly format. Yes, sir. Through our yes, sir. Uh, we, we are going to maintain an assembly format. We're going to uh, do this very orderly. And as the men are asking questions, we want to do that one at a time. Uh, let's not make this a cross-the-room debate. That I don't think that's going to be helpful for what we're trying to do. There may be a more appropriate time for something like that. But uh, I'm going to try to do both, moderate and answer questions. And so if I miss someone, I apologize for that. Or if somebody wants to volunteer to come moderate while we're doing Q&A, that would be fine as well. Uh, and I will be the bad guy, okay? I, I'm just telling you right now. I've done this before, and I, I, I'm not afraid to be the bad guy. And, and so if, if somebody's shouting from across the room at somebody else, I'm, I'm going to ask you to stop, okay? Because we want to keep this orderly. Uh, just a forewarning. Uh, the handout that you have is an exhaustive version of what we're going to have up on the PowerPoint. So that is for your purposes to take home and to look at later. Uh, we're not going to go through that word for word. There may be verses that are on the, the handout that we don't necessarily touch on in the PowerPoint today. Uh, I didn't do that for confusion, but for brevity's sake, because we could get really bogged down in some things. I will have a couple of times I'll ask you to reference the handout uh, for specific purposes. Okay. Oh, it's not. There we go. All right. We don't want to start out with technical difficulties. All right, so the theme of today is going to be 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses, uh, verse 15, and where the Bible says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
And we're going to go through a lot of these verses, and we're going to go through them slow. And we're going to break down what these verses are teaching. And, and that's going to do two things. One, it's going to focus on what we're trying to accomplish today, but also it's an exercise in what we're doing. So we're going to practice what we're learning today, looking at scriptures, breaking down scriptures, looking at words. How do we examine those words to help us study? Now, you say, well, this is supposed to be teacher training. That's right. This is teacher training. And, and I want to say this first off, if we don't get this right, it doesn't matter what presentation skills we have, doesn't matter how well we're, we're able to organize and deliver a sermon, none of that matters if we get this wrong. And so it, the most important thing for us as teachers is to know how to handle God's Word in the right way. And we're going to ask God's Word, how do we do that? And so there's some words here I want to break down first off. One of those is the word study. And, and I'll just tell you right now, as I was growing up, as as I was in high school, I hated to study. I, I cared nothing about academia, about education. I just didn't. Frustrating for my stepmother because she was a teacher. And so we butted heads. And it, she thought it was very ironic I chose a, a career in study. But I, I enjoy study. And, and I know not everybody does. I know for a lot of people, study is tedious. Uh, but the word study in and of itself and what's translated here infers the idea of diligence and effort. And I know we all know that, but what does that look like? What does that look like? When we're talking about studying the Bible, what does that look like? And number two, what is our goal for study? And I, I, I think that sometimes we don't necessarily have the right goal for studying. A lot of times we're studying because we want to be able to go out and whip somebody in a debate. That's not the right intention. Sometimes we want to study because we want to be able to stand before a crowd of people and we want to puff ourselves up with pride and manifest our own intelligence about the Word of God. That's not the right intention. And so what should be our intention for diligent study of God's Word? And so he identifies that as he's speaking to this evangelist, Timothy. He says, study to show yourself approved unto God. That's number one. You're going to do this to please the Lord. And be approved by the Lord. That's number one. But number two, he says, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. So think about Timothy, a workman of God, as he is going out. And what is his realm of expertise, if you will? It's the Word of God. That's what he's utilizing. That's the tool that he's using to be a workman for God, to do his job. And I'll tell you, guys, if you go out and you try to be a beacon for God's glory in your life and teach other people the truth and you don't know the Bible, you're going to be ashamed. You're going to be ashamed. You're going to be put to shame. And, and sometimes people get in over their head. They don't know God's Word, but, they, but they, know that they think they know the truth, so they go out and they debate somebody, and then it doesn't do any good because people are watching, and they hear this guy who doesn't really believe in the Scriptures just whoop this guy, just knock him around. And you've got to know the Scriptures. That is the weapon of our warfare. That's what God's given us in order to accomplish His purpose in our life. And so that's number two that he tells Timothy. But number three is this, and this is very important, rightly dividing the word of truth. So let's look at the word rightly dividing for a moment. It comes from the Greek word orthotomeo, which is a combination of two words. Ortho, and I don't remember the exact, I think it's tomeros or something like that. But you put those words together and it literally means to make a straight cut. So if you look at the definition here, literally it's to make a straight cut. 
And then you see this word dissect. And so you put those two kind of concepts together, and we all probably understand the idea of dissecting something, making a straight symmetrical cut. Now, when you go in and you dissect something, this is less of taking a sword and more of taking a scalpel. We're not talking about hacking away. And I think sometimes that's the way we approach Bible study. We just go in there and hack away. But this is a surgical procedure. It's something that's done very carefully. Why? Because it could be very easy to make a flippant cut in God's Word and come out with the wrong conclusion. And especially if you're a teacher, that's very, very dangerous. And, and I, I want you to notice that in the, in the parentheses next to the word dissect is expound correctly. So we're going to talk about Strong's here in a little bit and how these definitions work and all that. But what I want you to notice right here is that you've got these definitions dissect correctly. Those two words go together. This word is in the middle of it to be an explanation of what that means, to dissect correctly, to expound. Let's talk about expounding for a moment. So the word expound means to explain, to lay open the meaning. I like that. It kind of gives us the idea of dissecting, to lay open the meaning. Now listen, to clear, clear to clear, to clear, of obscurity. What's that mean? It means to speak things in a very clear and concise manner where there's no confusion. Whatever you say, people understand what you're saying. And then it says to interpret as to expound a text of Scripture to expound a law. Sometimes you'll hear this word used. I like this word better than this word because I'm not necessarily a guy that's a big fan of some of these more academic words and, you know, Love me or hate me for that, I don't, it doesn't matter. But exegesis means the same thing as expound. So if you hear somebody say, you know, what's your exegesis, how, what's your method of exegesis for Scripture? What they're asking you is, how do you interpret Scripture, okay? So that's just a very fancy way of saying that. But you'll hear that word or read it if you're reading different commentaries and things like that. Okay, so another word that's associated with this is the word hermeneutics, which, which is another term you're going to hear a lot. Uh, and, and again, that's one of those, it's one of those academic terms, but here's what the word hermeneutics means. It means the art of finding the meaning of an author's words and phrases and of explaining it to others. You know what that is? That's rightly dividing the word of God. That's, it's the same concept. And so any, anytime somebody reads a work of literacy, they're using this. They may not ever think to themselves, I need the proper hermeneutic. They're just looking and examining a text and criticizing that text to find out certain things about it so that they know how to understand it. That's the idea. And that's what's very important for us as we're studying God's Word is that we have the proper method of looking at God's Word, examining God's Word, of con making conclusions regarding God's Word, and then expounding that to others. And so here's what I want you to think about. As a student of God's Word, you are not a consumer of knowledge and wisdom. You are to be a conduit for that knowledge and wisdom you obtain. It's not just about me filling my head full of all of this knowledge and wisdom from God's Word. It's about me understanding those things so I can teach it to others. So that is the the, the purpose of 2 Timothy 2.15. That's what he's telling Timothy to do. To study God's word and to do that with diligence. To be approved, to not be ashamed in his work. And thirdly, and most importantly, so that you'll be able to not only understand God's word, but explain that to other people so that they understand God's word. So that's the primary purpose. So that's what we're going to talk about today. 
Um, that seems like a very long introduction, but that's what we're going to discuss today is how is it that we go into God's Word and we view it through a certain lens and we come out with the right conclusions. Now, I'm going to be very upfront. I don't have every answer for that, and I'll tell you why. Because I still find myself looking through, uh, for instance, Ezekiel and some of the various details of, of prophecy, some of the, what I would say are more... Um, dark sayings in prophecy, some things that are obscure. And, and I'm just being honest here. I look at some of those things and I go, I'm not sure what's being conveyed here. But we can get the general idea, even though we may not be able to interpret every single one of those things. However, with that said, there is a method that God has given to us to view his word, and we're going to find it not in some book that some man wrote, but from the Bible. And so that's what our focus is going to be. What does the Bible say about itself? So I want to start with Nehemiah chapter 8. And I'm from West Texas too, so don't worry when I butcher all these names. Um, I'll do my best. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. This is after they've come back from Babylonian captivity. Uh, they're starting to read the law of God again. And remember, these people have been in captivity for 70 years. Uh, some of them were. And, and so you've got a lot of people who have been removed from God's Word for a long time. And these priests and these other men who, who are mentioned here are taking it upon themselves to get people familiar with God's law. So Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 7 and 8. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shebathai, Hodijah, uh, Maaseah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleiah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. You say, now why are we reading this? Here's why we're reading this. These men did not just walk up to a pulpit of wood with the law of God, open it up, read it, and go sit down. That's not what they did. What did they do? It says that they gave the sense. What does that mean? It means they explained the meaning. It means they expounded the law of God to the people. Why? One of the things that I think we, we might, might get us into trouble as teachers is assuming that everybody understands what we understand. Or assuming that everybody has studied what we've studied. And so we, we may study something for 12 or, or, or 20 hours and we get up and you're taking 12 or 20 hours of, of study, very focused study, and you're going to convey that in 40 minutes to a bunch of people. Be very careful about assuming what other people know and understand. There's probably a lot of people that know and understand what you know, know and understand. But they're not taking any chances, okay? They're going to explain the law of God so that people can understand the reading. And there's a purpose for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 10. This is not on your handout if you're looking at the handout. It says, there are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. So, I think most of us are familiar with what's going on here. Paul is talking about spiritual gifts, and specifically he's talking about the usage of tongues inside an assembly of the church. And so that's the context. 
But don't miss another teaching here that is the foundation of why he's teaching these things. And so we're not necessarily going to talk about spiritual gifts, but I want to think about this for a moment. I mentioned this earlier about intention. And I want, I want to notice this right here. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts. What does that mean? It means that those people there were desiring to have a spiritual gift. Now, is that wrong for them to desire that? No, it's not. But notice what he says along with that. If you're going to desire a spiritual gift, let it be for this purpose. For what purpose? To seek to excel to the edification of the church. Now, is that what they were doing at Corinth? If you read the letter, you're going to get a, a, a picture real quick. A lot of people desired the spiritual gifts because of how it made them look. They, they, were, they were wanting those gifts because it was an element of pride for them. They were, they were connecting themselves to other men because it was an element of pride for them. And so their intention wasn't right. And so here's what I want to say. It's hard to judge our intentions at times. And, and a lot of times we go into Scripture and we're, we're trying to learn more, we're trying to educate ourselves. But again, if, if our point is to get up here so that we can impress people, that's not good, okay? That's not good for anybody. It's not good for you, personally. It's not good for the congregation. You know, if you were to walk up here and say, well, what is the uh, epistemological origin of that? Nobody cares. <laughs> Nobody cares. They just don't. They're here to be edified. And so we have to keep that in mind. Our intention behind educating ourselves, if we're going to desire to improve, to, to excel, if you will, to get better, that should be our intention. I want to better edify the church. This is not about your status. It's not about people recognizing your intelligence. And, and I cannot express that enough. This is a very serious thing for you to get up and address God's people. And we have to do it with the right heart and the right intention. And what is the best thing to do? It's not for me to get up and use a bunch of words you can understand. It's not for me to get up and use a language that you're going, well, you sound like a foreigner. No, it's to speak in a way that everybody can understand. Now, you may say, well, some, some of the younger people, they're not going to understand some of the things you say. That's right. But I'll tell you, it's just like he describes in the law about the rain. The rain falls down and it gives life to everything. And so the kids get what the, key, the kids need to get. And the more mature get what the more mature need to get. But I'll tell you, when you just get up here and you sound like a professor, the kids are getting nothing. The young people are not learning. And some of the older people, they're not getting anything out of it. You know why? Because they're coming away with the inclusion. Well, that guy's really smart. But I'll tell you what they're not doing. They're not walking out of here going, God is great. That's not what they're doing. You know why? Because they didn't get it. This is about God being glorified. It's about the saints being drawn toward God and closer to God and learning more about God so they can better serve God. So that's got to be our intention for wanting to improve and to learn and to gain more knowledge in our study. 1 Timothy 4.16, how serious is this? Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. This is Timothy again, a young evangelist who Paul's writing to, and he says, take heed to yourself. You know what that means, take heed to yourself? It means play, pay close attention to yourself, Timothy, and to the doctrine. For in doing this, you shall both save yourself and them that hear thee. How important is it that we get it right? Souls are at stake. This is life and death. It's life and death. 
And so that should impress upon us that we can't just go, oh man, I'm, I'm supposed to preach next Sunday or next Wednesday. And, and we got three days we go, oh, well, I'll work, that, work, I'll work on that uh, on Saturday night. Really? Is that really the amount of seriousness that we, that we give this incredible responsibility of teaching the truth to God's people? And, and I just want to give you some advice, and, and I hope your elders aren't upset that I tell you this, but, but if that's really the effort you're putting out, just don't bother. Just don't bother. Now, if, if you don't know what else to do, we're going to talk about that through our sessions, but if you're not willing to put in some type of effort to edify God's people, look, we're not slot fillers. That's not our purpose. We're not slot fillers. God has called us to edify his saints with the truth. With the truth. That's going to bless them. That's going to help guide them to meeting the calling that God has called them to in Jesus Christ. So take heed to yourself and to what you're teaching and what you're learning. Because this is, souls are at stake here. All right, so let, let's get into some nuts and bolts. Nuts and bolts of, of, of study and understanding God's Word. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 9. Isaiah says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? That's the questions of the day. Who's going to understand God's Word? Who's going to understand the doctrine of God's Word? And then he answers his question with this. Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. So I know that's somewhat of an outdated you know, analogy, but, but let's just make that clear. He's talking about maturity. That's what he's talking about. You know, a child reaches a certain age where they're weaned from their mother and they begin to eat solid food. That's, that's the analogy he's making. So should we expect a babe in Christ to understand all the doctrine? No. No, and I, and I think sometimes that frustrates us that, that we just, we look at somebody who's recently converted. Maybe they've been in the church for, for six months and we go, oh, they're just not getting it. Well, it takes time. It takes time. Some of us are thick skulled. I am. I mean... I, I grew up sitting on a church pew, and, and it wasn't until I was in my 20s until I under, understood some things that to most of y'all would probably be very basic in the Scriptures. Now, that's my fault, okay? I'm not saying that, that that's necessarily how things should be. That was my fault. But I'm just saying don't get too frustrated when a babe doesn't understand the solid food. That's, that's just the way it is. You've got to mature. Well, how do you mature? You say, well, come to church. Well, that's one. That's good. That's come to church, but that's not enough. It's just not enough. You're going to learn things at church. You're, you're going to learn things from the men that speak. But every single person here, you need to devote yourself to personal study of the Bible if you want to mature. And, I, and I'll tell you why. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers. Do you see that? He says, You ought to be teachers by this time. But he says, even though that's the case, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and have come to need milk and not solid food. Can we all understand that as, as, as the Hebrew writer is writing this letter to the Hebrews that he's chastising them? That I'm having to give you all these basic concepts of Christianity because you haven't grown. That's what he's telling them. And then he tells them why. Everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of a full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good 
and evil. Okay, so we're going to spend some time on this because I, I think it's going to be really helpful. And I want to conceptualize this verse because I, I want everybody to walk away here and think about this verse and remember this verse as it relates to you personally. Everyone that uses milk, what is milk? Milk is the more basic principles of Christianity. What he mentioned earlier as being the first principles of the oracles of God. They're the basic things, right? And so what does he say about someone who uses only milk? He says they're unskillful in the word of righteousness. Okay, so what is skill? What's he mean by unskillful? Okay, so let's think about this in a worldly sense. Um, do you watch basketball, Jackson? Maybe a little. Who's the best basketball player? Luke, Luke you, you're a basketball guy. Who's the best basketball player today? In your opinion. Thank you. He said, I can't say LeBron James. Okay, we agree then. Okay, we agree on that. Uh, do you think LeBron James is a very skilled basketball player? Right, I do too. I think he's one of the most skilled basketball players you ever play the game. But you know what he is? He's lazy. So I, I, I can't watch him because he's lazy. But you know what? We can't look at the guy and say, well, he doesn't have any skills. I mean, that's, that's why he had all the hype. He's a very skilled person. I, I watch a guy like Luka Doncic and I, and I go, this guy, he's, he's huge. He's a massive man. He looks like he should be playing center, but he's playing point guard. You know why? He's very skilled. Well, how do you think he got skilled? You think he grew up and somebody said, here's a basketball, and all of a sudden he, he, he has a triple-double? That's not how it works. There's hours and hours and hours of working on the little things, of working on fundamentals, of getting used to holding a basketball, getting used to, to, to dribble a basketball, uh, getting used to, get to, to footwork, and all the fundamentals that go with basketball. You say, why are we talking about basketball? Because it's related to this concept right here when he talks about, by reason of use, they have their senses exercised, and that's why they're skillful. And so here's, here's what I want you to understand. Just like anything else in life, if you want to gain skill, don't look at somebody and go, man, they're really skillful. I wish I had that. Okay, maybe you'll never have the skill that that person has. But I'll tell you, if that's all you do is look and admire someone else's skill, that's not going to do you any good. You know what's going to do you good? Start using God's Word. Get in God's Word. Start reading God's Word. And the more you, you read God's Word, guess what happens? Your senses become exercised to discern those things. Now, there's some people that if you throw a basketball to them, they got to watch the ball to catch it, right? They got to watch it. You know why? Because their sense is on exercise. You throw some guys the basketball, they're catching it like this, looking for the next pass. You know why? Because they've caught a basketball from that distance long enough to know how long it's going to take there. And they're not computing all this in their mind. It's just muscle memory. And that does exist within Bible study, muscle memory. So you read a certain passage and you go, you know what, I've read that over in Luke. And you know what, I've also seen that same concept over here in Ephesians chapter 2. And you start connecting the dots. Why? Because the more you use God's word, the more skillful you're going to be because your senses are becoming exercised. That's the key to maturity. It's usage. You say, that's really basic. That's right, that's really basic. You want to be better in God's word? Read it more. But don't just read it. Study God's word more. And you're going to be more skillful with it. Strong meat, he says, belongs to them that are of a full age. So here's the contrast that he makes between the baby and those that are mature. So, what's the problem? 
you know, we're from, we're from Texas, so we start our kids young, right? Well, this is not good parenting. <laughs> Number one, that kid probably doesn't have enough teeth in his mouth to be able to gnaw on a piece of meat and actually get it in some type of form where he can swallow it. So the so first problem is he'll probably choke trying to get it in his system. But there's another problem. You could probably grind up this meat and put it in some type of liquid form and get the kid to get it in his stomach. But even then, his digestive system's not mature enough to be able to handle it. So he's either going to choke, vomit, or possibly get some type of obstruction or die. We get that, right? You don't give milk, or you don't give steak to a baby, right? But sometimes I think we're a lot more comfortable with this. And, and so, I, you know, sometimes I have, uh, I've, I've heard people who have been in the church for 50 years tell me, look, you, you, you took it too hard on me today. I, you need to go easy on us babes. <laughs> and, you know, I don't say this, but I'm thinking maybe it's time to grow up. God, God does not expect us to, to never grow and that's what Paul, or the Hebrew writer starts out by saying is, look, you ought to be teaching by now, but I'm, I'm teaching you the same thing over and over and over and over. And if you go back to Isaiah 28, and we're not going to do this, but this is, a, this is a challenge for you if you want a challenge. Go back and read Isaiah 28 verse 9 and read verse 10 with it, and then keep reading. Keep reading through the chapter. And you're going to notice that as Isaiah talks about them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast, he also makes these comments about, for precept must be upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And I've misused that passage before to say, well, this is how God's word works. You know what he's actually doing there if you keep reading? Chastising them. For going, you don't understand these things, and so I have to tell you the same thing over and over and over and over, and you're not getting it. That's not what God expects from us. He expects us personally to use his word, to use it frequently, to gain uh, a better sense of God's word and to mature and to grow. Okay. So obviously, that's going to take some time. It's going to take some time. But one of the, one of the fundamentals of scripture analysis and, and understanding how the, what, what the Bible means by something is called the analogy of scripture or the analogy of faith. Now, that's just a fancy way of saying this. Scripture always agrees with Scripture. Now, we may look at some Scriptures and go, well, I'm not sure how those two things reconcile. We'll look at it closer because there, there's a lot of different conclusions that you might gain from that. And one of them might be, well, maybe we just don't understand why that's said that way in the context. And so that's a place to start. And we're going to talk a great deal about that later, about context. But Scripture always agrees with scripture and scripture is the best interpreter of scripture and so if you start comparing scriptures and looking at scriptures and looking at the context around it that's going to be the best way for you to learn and understand what's being said and I realize there's lots and lots and lots of sources out there today and I'm not going to condemn those and I'm not going to say don't ever read a commentary I think those can be helpful in a limited fashion but be very very careful and don't assume just because somebody got a book published that they looked at the context of a passage and that their conclusion is the right one. Dig for yourself. Question what you read in every commentary. Question it. Decide for yourself based upon your study of Scripture. And if you can't go nowhere, I'll tell you, you've got very experienced students of God's Word in this congregation. Call them. 
They would love to sit down and visit with you about the Bible. I guarantee you they would love to sit down and visit with you about the Bible. Call them and tell them, I'm having trouble with this passage. Can we study it together? They'd be glad to do that with you. But study it for yourself because Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. And also, since all Scriptures are harmoniously united, every purposed interpretation of any passage must be compared with what other parts of the Bible teach. Now, what do I mean by that? To put that very simply, it's this. If you go into a book and you read a statement and you go, I know exactly what that means. Pause and ask this question. Does the Bible say anything else about what I'm reading in this verse? Because I need to go there first. And I'll tell you why that's important. Because sometimes the same English and sometimes even the same Greek words are used in multiple verses. That doesn't mean they harmonize in their idea or their thought. And that's, that's a problem sometimes. We get like a, a, uh, a topical Bible, at which will give you a whole bunch of verses that use the same word. But sometimes the idea is different, so we, we draw the wrong conclusion. We may think, well, you know, the word faith is in this verse, and the word faith is in this verse, and the word faith is in this verse. They all must be teaching the same thing. And the problem is this. The word faith can mean different things in a different context. Sometimes it may mean the faith as in the faith that we all follow and practice. That is the doctrine of Christ. Sometimes the word faith may mean a belief that one person holds. Like in Romans 14 when he says, do you have faith? He's not asking, do you believe in Jesus? He's asking, do you have a personal belief that is connected to your conscience? The word faith may mean trustworthy. So be very careful about assuming that because a word is used, that that necessarily means that it harmonizes with another verse where that same word is used. Because what more is harmonious is that they're all teaching the same idea. And they may use different words to do that, but the ideas are what harmonize in Scripture. Again, is that going to be something that you're going to get if you're just very lazy with your study? Absolutely not. So again, it all comes back to this idea of diligence. This takes some time, and I'll tell you, I am very thankful very thankful that a lot of the things that I know about the Bible, I didn't have to do the legwork on. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you, it was very easy for me to develop sermons on baptism when I started training as evangelist, and I'll tell you why. Because, number one, I had a grandfather, two grandfathers, who both had already done a lot of legwork on that. I had multiple teachers at my home congregation who'd done that. There were guys that lived before me, like Truman Till, uh, Pat Manning, not that he's lived before me, but... But those guys did a lot of that work, and they showed that work to me, and they said, look how these passages all line up together. And I went, I see that. I didn't have to go locate them. So be thankful. Be thankful that you've had faithful men of God who've been doing this for generations to make it easier for you to understand God's Word. But don't be satisfied that you've learned enough. Always, always be hungry. And that's a key to this. You've got to be hungry. A baby doesn't drink milk, and a mature person doesn't eat meat unless they're hungry. You've got to be hungry and keep that hunger. So I want to talk about this analogy of faith for just a moment and express this as an example. And then after we finish this, we're going to take a, a break and do some Q&A. Isaiah, in his writings, revealed certain things about the coming, coming Messiah. And we see those same truths being expressed in the New Testament. And what we're seeing is that, that even though Isaiah writes these things in different places, that his ideas are all consistent. One of the things he wrote about was the nature of Christ's birth, that he would come from a virgin. That is fundamental 
to Jesus being the Son of God. Without him being born to a virgin, he's not the Son of God. So that's a very important verse. Okay, the identity of who Jesus is in Isaiah 9, 6, where he talks to us about, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. And then what does he mention about him? His characteristics. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Well, is there anything that would tell us that Isaiah's idea here would be validated in other parts of the Scripture? Absolutely. Jesus himself revealed that. He revealed that several times, especially in the Gospel of John, where he talks about that he is deity in, in one particular instance. What does he say to them? Before Abraham was, I am. What's he saying? I'm this fulfillment. I am the mighty God. I am the I am. I am that I am. I exist. I am existence. Isaiah also tells us the reason and the, uh, for his coming and his death in Isaiah 53. And we're not going to take time to read all this. I just want to make sure that everybody understands what we mean when we're talking about the analogy of faith, okay, and, and how that works. Uh, Isaiah 53, I, I think, is probably the most detailed of all the prophecies regarding the death of the Messiah and also the purpose for that death. Micah tells us where Jesus would be born, and that's one of the first things we read in the Gospels. We read about his birth, with the exception of John. And, and, and so we, we're reading through those Gospels, and what do we read? Prophecies from Micah. Where was he to be born? In Bethlehem. And so Micah is, is adding another layer of truth to the things that Isaiah taught. And then if you go over to the Psalms, the Psalms are known as a shining forth. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of the Psalms that are prophetic in nature about the coming of the Messiah, about God's salvation to Israel and Judah, about the true uh, manifestation of God's mercy. It's all throughout the Psalms. And so David tells of Christ's death in Psalms 22 with intricate detail. Even to the words that Jesus would speak on the cross as he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. I mean, and people look at that and they go, no, nah, that's just coincidence. It's not coincidence. There's no way it could be coincidence. Very intricate details about the nature and the place and the method that Jesus would die. As he writes in there, they pierced my hands and my feet. And you read these things, and I'll tell you what it does for me when I read these things. It emboldens me. It strengthens me. And so don't just read one place and say, well, I know everything I need to know about that. No, there's a lot you need to know about that all throughout the Scriptures. And it's layered through there in what we call the analogy of faith. His resurrection is spoken about, which is one of the prophecies that, that, uh, that Peter talks about in Acts chapter 2. His kingship is talked about, that Jesus would be king in Psalms chapter 89. And I know I'm running through this quickly, but again, these are just examples. Uh, that as you go back through your handout, I want you to take time and look through those and examine them for yourself and then do a little legwork and go look around through the Psalms. Read through the Psalms. See if you see anything else connected to this. And what are we doing? We're exercising our senses. That's what we're doing. We're exercising our senses. Okay? Did you know that even Moses recorded a prophecy about Jesus' death in Genesis 3? Genesis 3, we're talking about the Messiah's death. And it's, it's very veiled in nature, and we're going to talk about the nature of prophecy later and why some of these things are what we would call veiled. But as he prophesies, as God prophesies, and Moses is recording it, he says to the woman and, and to the serpent different prophecies. And one of the things that he says 
is I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And what's going to happen? It's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise its head. Prophesying about the, the destruction of Satan that's then revealed to us in Hebrews chapter 2 in the same type of language that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In Genesis 3, God is layering all these truths about his purpose and what he had come to do in Christ Jesus. You know why? Because it wasn't plan B. And you see that throughout the scriptures. You, you see all these prophecies layered. And you know this wasn't like God looked down and he said, man, these people are messed up. I've got to figure out a way to save them. No, he planned that before he ever breathed life into Adam. Because he knew. And I'll tell you, again, those things emboldened me. They strengthened my faith. They make me understand who God is and who I am in his sight. <clears throat> okay, let's, let's take a quick break and let's, uh, let's go through some Q&A again. Uh, please keep all your questions pertaining to the material that we've just looked at. Uh, we'll allow that one at a time. Uh, just raise your hand and I'll, I'll call on you since nobody's volunteered to, to, uh, to help me. Uh, so any questions at this time? Absolutely, absolutely, and, and, and we're going to dive into this a little bit more later, but, <clears throat> but, the, but one of the differences that I see in reading and study is that reading, I'm just, I'm just looking at the phonetics of words. I'm just reading through it, and, and I can get the sense of something if I'm, if I'm reading, like say I, I, I could read, be a, I can be a quick reader, but I'm not, because I may have to, I was talking to Diane about this this morning, if I'm reading a book, I may read a paragraph and go, wait, wait. And I go back and read it again. And I go back and read it again. And I go back and read it again and go, oh, okay, finally I understand it. Reading is just the, in, just the intent of reading is to kind of absorb basically the general idea of information. Study is a lot more focused. It's a lot more focused. That's, that's actually going to be our, uh, our next verse here that talks about that. So we'll just cover that because it's related to this question. He says, till I come give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. So there's three things he mentions giving attendance to. And that idea of give attendance is a very important idea because it means to hold your mind towards something. Okay, And, and we're not going to go into all this detail because I want to save that after the break. But, but if you're holding your mind towards Scripture and you're looking at it, study can be very different from just reading because study doesn't end when I close the book. And I, I've told a lot of people who say, I, I want to know more about the Bible. I say, okay, read less and study more. And they go, what? Here's what I mean by that. Maybe at night you've got a habit of reading a chapter. And, and nighttime's not the best time for me to do this, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But, but maybe you're in a custom, you're in a habit of reading a chapter. I think that's a very good thing to do. But what might be more helpful is just read a couple of verses from the chapter and read them several times and then just think about them. Just meditate on them. And meditation is a huge part of study that it may not be a part of reading. And so if I'm meditating on something, that, that sounds like sort of a, 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 a more worldly term, the idea of meditation. But that's, that's all throughout the Bible, the idea of pondering something, about focusing your mind toward it and thinking about it for a long period of time. Does that, does that answer the question, Van? Yes, sir. You have to have a prepared mind if you're going to study. 
And, and if everybody couldn't hear that, he was mentioning Acts 17, where it, where it talks about having a readiness of mind and, and getting your mind prepared to study. And I, I'll tell you, I can read at home, but I, but I can't necessarily study at home. I have to find a more private place. Uh, I've got an office that's away from the house where I can go and study. I may read at home, but, I, but find some quiet time. You know, I know that's hard for some of y'all. You've got very young kids and things like that. Talk to your husbands. Guys, you can be mad at me later. Talk to your husbands and tell them I need some time to dive into God's Word. And, and if your husband fights with you about that, just tell him to come talk to me. So <laughs> that, that's a good thing, right, for, for not only us, but for our, for our wives, our ladies, to spend some time alone in God's Word. That's important. Any other questions? Jackson. Previously in 1 Timothy 4, he talks about meditating on these things. Um, could you elaborate on the difference between meditation and study if it's at a higher level of contemplation versus just regular study and what that process can look like? I don't, I don't necessarily think that you can study without meditation. That's, that's going to be my short answer to that because I think if you, if you remove meditation from study, you're really not going to get a lot out of it because those things are really in, interconnected um, because I, I can read and not give a lot of thought about what I'm reading. And I've got a short attention span at times. I may read a whole page and then realize I've been thinking about something while I'm reading it and I've got to go back and start over. So, you know, without that pondering, without that, you know, focusing on the thoughts of what you're reading. I, I'm just not sure that's really study. Does that answer the question? Okay. Any other questions? That makes it pretty easy. Okay. Uh, let's take a 10-minute break, and then we'll come back here about... I'm sorry? Yeah, and, and, and we're going to dive into that later as well. But, well, I, I mean, to give just a brief explanation of interpreting Scripture, there's, there's this notion out there, and we're going to talk about this passage later as well, because Peter mentions in one of his letters in Second Peter that no Scriptures of any private interpretation. So you may have people use that against you and say, well, that's just your interpretation, and the Scripture's not of any private interpretation. And I want to say this. Every reading of Scripture is of a private interpretation in that way. That's not what the verse is talking about. He's talking about the way it was delivered. It wasn't privately interpreted and then delivered to the people. That They just said what God told them to say. Every time you read a passage, you're going to interpret it in a certain way. The, the idea of interpretation is that I read it, and I study it, and I try to find out what it means. And, and my conclusion as to what it means is my interpretation. Does that clarify that? And so it's not necessarily about just the words that I'm reading, but the conclusion that I draw is my, if you will, interpretation. And, and that's what we're really talking about today is that God has given us tools to help us interpret His Word because that's the reason why we all come away with different conclusions is because we don't all use the same method of interpreting. And, and there may be things we just never agree on. I'm not saying that, that that's not possible. If we're all looking at Revelation, there's probably going to be a lot of different ideas about that. And part of that is because it was written in sign language and some of it's obscure and it's not as clear as like if we all read, for instance, Mark 15, 16, 15, and 16, and we had disagreements on that, then we got a problem. Then we got a problem because it's a very clear doctrinal teaching about the gospel and salvation. 
And so what a lot of people will do is they'll just look at maybe Mark 16 and they'll go, well, that's just your interpretation of that. Or they'll say, well, that doesn't belong in the Bible. Or they'll say, well, but he didn't say you don't have to be baptized. He, he, he just says that if you don't believe, you'll be condemned. There, there's all these you know, mental cartwheels that people do to interpret that. And the reason they do that is because they don't want to believe what it says. And, and when we're interpreting Scripture, the first thing we have to do is remove that from our mind and say, I'm not going to read this and try to prove myself right. I'm going to read this so I can understand what is right for me and for my life and what's right in accordance with God's will. Okay, is that... Okay. Any more questions? All right, if I say we're taking a break, no, just kidding, Neil. All right, let's go ahead and take a break and come back at 11.03. But It may have been on mute. Like I said, old habits die hard. Yeah, we'll put that over here. Mark was better at putting that on my belt than I am. So the word analogy means comparing two objects or comparing two things. And so that's, that's what its general usage is. So when you, read, when you see the word analogy, don't think metaphor, but think a comparison of two things or objects. And what we're talking about is Scripture and Scripture, faith and Scripture, doctrine and Scripture. That's the analogy of faith. I hope that helps explain what that means. So there's, there's always a... a a point of comparison. So, like if you go into the Bible and you say, okay, I believe this. And you read the Bible and you go, well, that contradicts my belief. Well, what do you do with that? Do you dig into the Scripture and try to make it fit to your belief? Well, no, what we need to do is surrender our will to the will of God and align our belief with what the Scripture teaches. That's the idea of the analogy of faith, okay? All right. So we, we were diving into 1 Timothy chapter 4 and this idea of give attendance to these things. And so Paul tell, tells Timothy, until I come. And so Paul's away from Timothy. He says, until I come, here's what I want you to focus on. I want you to focus on reading to exhorting and to doctrine. And that word exhort often means encouraging or comforting or sometimes it has the idea of even correction. Maybe in a different uh, spirit or attitude than rebuke might be, but similar in, in the way of oftentimes it is to correct a problem, exhorting, like we read that word in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 where it says, exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching, encouraging, uh, spurring one another on maybe. So these are the things he says I want you to focus on and I want to look at this word give attendance again. And we're going to do two things with this. We're going to define it in the Strong's, and I also want to talk about how a Strong's works. And here's why. I remember when I first started preaching, someone bought me a Strong's. And if you've actually got a paper Strong's, uh, hardback Strong's, it's about yay thick. It's about this big. I mean, it's a big book, right? And, and then you look in there, and I don't use one today. I have a digital one, and, and it's not because I don't like the paper, because I like the paper but it's because I can't see it because the, the print is about this big. I don't know what size that font is, but it's really small. But they're very, very useful if you know how to use one. Well, I didn't. I had no idea what, what I was looking at. I, I assumed that when I was looking up a Greek word that I was just reading a, a long list of definitions. And, and that was part of the problem. 
That's dangerous. And, and one of the reasons that's dangerous is because if you, if you just read everything as a definition, you may come away with the wrong conclusion. And when you do that, the Strong's is not helpful. It's more confusing than it is clarifying. So I want to talk about how Strong's works as we look at the word give attendance. And I say word give attendance because it's only one word uh, in the Greek. So it's the word pros ek-o, pros ek-o, that's the word. It comes from two words, okay? And that's what the first thing in our Strong's here where it says from and it says G4314 and G2192. Now, if you're a word nerd and you want to do all this, uh, you know, have fun with that. I do this some. Um, this is the two words, the root words of the word pros echo. And so what it's telling you is where it originated from. Just like if you were in school, you probably learned about word etymology and learned that our English words all have an origin in some other language at some point in time. So he's telling you this one word came from two Greek words. And from that, you can learn a lot about it. So you can look at the root word and you can learn some things about that word. And so the first thing that he mentions here is that, and then he mentions figuratively to hold the mind toward. So let's look at this right here. What is that? What is that? And so here's, here's where it's really important to know what a Strong's is doing. And this is in your, if you've got a big, thick, hardback Strong's or paperback Strong's, it's going to be the same in all these. There are certain words that are italicized. Do you notice the italicized words? What are the italicized words? Those are the definitions of the word pros echo. Nothing else in this is a definition except for the italicized words. And what they're doing is literally defining the words with this depending on their usage. Okay, so here's the definition figuratively of pros echo. To hold towards. That's the word. That's the definition. To hold towards. And then you've got the mind. And then it says... G3563 implied. What does that mean? It means when they use it to say hold toward, that they're implying hold your mind toward. That's what that means. Okay? So that's the figurative definition they give. Then it says that is. So if you say that is, now he's going to further explain what that means. And these are also definitions to pay attention to, be cautious about, apply oneself to, adhere to. So, so these are explanations of this original definition, hold the mind toward something. Okay, so that's how you define words in a Strong's. Those are the definitions. Now, what's all this other stuff over here? So there's a symbol, and this is, again, this is true in every single word that you look up in a Strong's. You're going to see this uh, colon dash, and it's also italicized. If you see this colon dash right here. And what the colon dash means is, okay, we're finished defining the word and everything past that. Think about this like a gate that you're passing through. And once you get to that gate, we're done defining the word. Now we're looking at how the Bible interprets or translates that word. Translates is a better word than interpret. But the way they translate that word. So when you go back and you look at these, the definitions are the italic words. Uh, the words that are not italicized that are inside of the definitions are explaining the definitions. And then once you go through this gate, this colon dash, this is how you're going to see it uh, translated in Scripture. So the word prosecco, which means to hold the mind toward, is translated this way in Scripture. Give attendance, give attendance at, give uh, attendance to, 
or give attendance unto. That's how you're going to see it used and translated into English in your Bible. Now, it's also translated beware, be given to, give or take heed, give heed or take heed, to or unto, or have regard for. So that's what all those words mean. Now, if you're really good and confused, we'll talk again later. If you've got questions about how Strong's work, come find me you know, at lunch or something and we'll visit about it more. But the simple explanation is the italicized words are the definitions. After that colon dash, that is the way that they're translated in the King James. And so you also notice it says total King James occurrences 24. Now, what I like to do in my study, if I'm really studying what a word means, is I want to go look and see how the Bible uses that word. And so I'll go hunt all 24 times. You say, that takes a lot of time. Well, it does if you have a paper Strong's. But there's another reason why I use a digital Strong's. And so in my digital Strong's, it'll say this, and that's also a hyperlink, so I can put my finger on where it says total King James occurrences, and then it brings up a list of every time that Greek word is used in the Bible. That is very helpful for me. It's a big time saver. Um, but that'll also help you define a word. How does the Bible use that word? How does it use that term? Well, just from looking at the way it's translated, you can see how that word is typically applied in Scripture, that it has to do with paying attention to something, that it has to do, well, guess what? That's what the definition is. So, I know we're going through a long exercise about these two words, give attendance, but the idea is, till I come, this is what needs to be occupying your mind, Timothy. This is what you need to spend your time doing. You need to devote yourself to, uh, adhere to. I like the word adhere to because that's like glue yourself. Glue yourself to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. So, so you can better understand what he means by that. So what is the result of gluing yourself to God's word? gluing yourself. Well, let's think about it this way. If you want to be good at anything, you got to put the time in. But if you put the time in, I'll tell you what it's going to do. It's going to grab your attention. And if it's got your attention, it's got all of you. It's got all of you. And I'll tell you, if, if, if Bible study, if you got an attitude of Bible study is a chore, but I need to do it out of obligation, you're going to get a very different result than you would if you glue yourself to God's Word and you put your attention and your mind on it constantly. Because it's going to affect you in a totally different way if you desire it and if you put your mind on it constantly and consistently. You know why? Because whatever you think about all day is going to determine how you act and how you think and how you talk. And so if I'm constantly feeding myself with God's Word, I'm paying attention to, to reading and doctrine, and I'm doing that all the time, guess what's going to come out of me? The right things, right? And that's, that's what we want. And so that, it's a very simple thing, but again, I just want to impress upon you, this is not about just reading something every day to maybe check off our box that, well, I read God's Word today. No, this, this is about having a greater intent for that, a greater intent. And I'll tell you, one of the reasons why we need this is because I don't know if you've noticed, but God is very complex in His thinking. <laughs> I'm obviously saying that somewhat sarcastically, but, but I think some people read the Bible and they go, well, that's very complex. Well, of course it is. The mind of God is complex for us. Because, number one, we are, we're creatures, we're creations, we're creatures. We don't live outside of time and space, but God does, and He sees all things and knows all things, and we just don't. And so, of course, it's going to be hard for us to understand some of the things about God. And, it, and it's not that we can't understand them, it's that we shouldn't assume it should be easy. 
And God says this in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So how much higher are God's thoughts than your thoughts and my thoughts? The heavens above the earth. Well, let's take something relatively close, our, our sun. Okay, The sun is 92 uh, 92 million, I believe it's 92 million 600,000 miles away. Okay, relatively close, right? Relatively close. In regard to the rest of the universe, it's relatively close than a lot of stars and systems and things like that. How much smarter is God than me? Here's what he uses. He uses what's called a hyperbole, which we're going to talk about later. It's higher than the heavens are above the earth. So God's not twice as smart as me. He's not 10 times smarter than me. God is infinitely more intelligent than I am. His thoughts are higher than mine. His ways are higher than mine. And, and we just have to keep that in mind. It's, it's going to be difficult because of who we're trying to, to, to understand. So because God's thoughts are so high. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. This is also a problem sometime in Bible study. I will call it a, a distraction. We get infatuated with the things that we don't know and can't understand. Those things that we would call, they are mysterious. And so people get hung up on a lot of things that they'll really never know. And they spend all their time thinking and pondering and meditating and reading and studying about something that God hadn't told us, you know. Do ghosts exist? That's something I've been asked a lot. Do ghosts exist? Because I have one in my house. And I'm going, oh, great. You know, oh, great. <laughs> you know, uh, does Adam have a belly? Did Adam have a belly button? You know, I don't know. Well, you know, he wasn't born, so he probably, he probably didn't have an umbilical cord. Well, who cares? <laughs> right? I mean, what, what is it going to do for me if I answer those things? God created the world with his word. But how did he do that? Well, I don't know. I wasn't there. And, and even the most righteous person on the earth at the time, Job, when God asked him, where were you when I hung the earth upon nothing? Job goes, I don't know. <laughs> he didn't know. You know why? Because we we're not going to know that. Not here. And, and maybe God reveals those things to us one day. But I'll tell you, there's a reason why God hasn't told us those things. You know why? Because they don't belong to us. They don't belong to us. And I want you to notice what he says here. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do the words of this law. I know this is Old Testament, but there's a, there's a great concept we need to understand. What God has given us belongs to us. And if we hold our mind towards those things, we're going to be blessed by it. And if I don't understand all the things that God has given to me, why am I going to waste my time on the things he hasn't? That makes no sense. It's not going to bless me. What's going to bless me is if I devote my mind to the things that God has given to me and to you. Because those things belong unto us. God's delivered them to us. So the passage that Van mentioned earlier, Acts 17, 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. And I believe this is from the New American Standard Version. I use this because of the translation of the word eagerness, because I want you to see that these people didn't go, well, I don't know if that's right. Let's go talk about it. They, they received the word with eagerness. 
They, they wanted to know more. They wanted to learn. And they had what you might call an open mind. They got their mind ready. But, but also, they examined the Scriptures daily. Daily. How many days? I don't know. Doesn't say, right? Doesn't say how many days. But daily tells you it's more than one. So it's not like they just went and, you know, gave it an hour or so and said, oh, okay, that's good. No, these people, they were diligent. You know what they were hearing? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what they were hearing. And they were diligent to go and to look in God's word. Some might go, well, you just ought to believe that. No, no, they're commended for that. They're commended for taking God's word and searching it out to ensure that what they were actually being told was true. Every single person has a responsibility to do that. I'm not infallible. None of your elders are infallible. We're all capable of being wrong, right? Do you believe that? Are you capable of being wrong? I hope you believe that. Because everybody here, we're all incapable of being wrong. Never, never just believe what someone says because of who said it. Never do that. Go and look in God's Word. I hope that everything I say today, you go back and you look and you read God's Word and you, you say, okay, was Ian right when he said this? And I hope you study the Scriptures and decide. And if I'm wrong, I hope you'll tell me. Because that's our duty. Not to be loyal to one another and that I just give you a pass if you say something that, that I may be questioning. No, we, our loyalty needs to be to God, to the truth of God's Word. And so everybody has that responsibility to be like these people. And when he talks about those in Thessalonica, he's not talking about the church at Thessalonica. He's talking about the Jews that he went in and he debated with that tried to kill him. These people weren't like those people. What did they do? They didn't just get mad because somebody said something they disagreed with. They first went and searched it out and made sure that what he was saying was either true or not true. And then they responded. Okay, that's exactly what we need to do. So I, I want to not just talk to the teachers today, but to the learners. And so if you come here and you're listening to a lesson and somebody steps on your toes, we hear that a lot. You stepped on my toes. Well, well, that's what we're supposed to do, right? Is step on each other's toes. Because what does the Word of God do? It exposes things in our life. And so if somebody says something and you leave here and you say, I cannot believe they talked about that. They know I've been struggling with this. Okay, well, there could be a scenario where that might not be appropriate. But if it's just, they're just shotgunning, they're just saying some things from God's word and it happens to step on your toes. Instead of leaving here mad and being mad at the preacher and being upset that your feelings got hurt, why not be like these people? And say, you know what? There's a reason my toes are stepped on. There's a reason my heart hurts right now. There's a reason I'm upset. And I probably need to go get in God's word and find out if, what, if, if what's happening is that I've got something wrong in my life that needs to change. That's nobility. That's what that is. That's nobility. But this idea that, well, you said something wrong, so I'm just going to close my mind and not think about it anymore. That's not helpful. It's not helpful at all. And honestly, we should have the type of humility that wants to please God so deeply that if, the, if, that if a person that walked up to us that we didn't have any respect for rebuked us, we'd at least consider what they said. You know why? Because it's not about them. It's about me and God and me being right with God. And so I think we do that a lot. We go, well, I'm not going to listen to the rebuke. I don't respect that person. Well, maybe they're right, though. Maybe they're right. That's the kind of humility we ought to have. I believe that's the kind of humility these people had. They were eager to hear about God and about his son, but they were also skeptical. They were also skeptical. And so what they do? They use the analogy of faith. They went and they compared scripture with scripture. They thought about the prophecies that Paul gave to them. 
They talked it out amongst themselves, and they made a decision, and they made the right decision. All right, so now we're going to delve into translation. And uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on translation. Again, this is, this is informational. Uh, I'm not going to try to give you suggestions. Um, I'm just going to try to give you some information. Now, what you use up here from the pulpit, talk to your elders about that. They may already have a standard for that that's already known. I don't know that standard, so if I've broken that standard, I apologize for that. Um, but if you're talking about translation, there's, a really, there's some really important information, and I don't want to get exhausted with this. I want to give the simple information about translations um, to, to just talk about what they are, where they came. We're not going to necessarily talk about where they came from, per se, a lot. But what, why are there so many translations, and what are they, and are they all equal? Because I think that's a problem. We, a lot of people think, well, you know, any translation is as good as another. And if you believe that, I, I will ask you, go out... And, and uh, well, actually, you don't have to. You can get on your phone, download an app called uh, Bible, and it, it's, it comes up. It's live version. And, and go through there and scroll and find a translation. It's called The Message. Go read that. And then tell me every translation is equal. <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a total perversion of God's Word is what it is. But, but, but knowing the difference between the translations will help guide us into what we need to be looking for when we're trying to discern truth. And so let's talk about translation. So in one translation, just as good as any other is one question. And the other one is, aren't they all just man's interpretation of what God has revealed to the apostles and prophets? So that's one of the arguments I've heard. Well, every translation is subject to the translator's bias. There's certainly some truth to that. Uh, but they're saying, well, uh, you know, isn't everything just an interpretation of what they were looking at in the Greek and writing into English? And that can be a very misleading question, very misleading, because it's not that simple. It's just not that simple. So I want to first start by showing you the top 10 translations of the Bible in the U.S. And, and I, did, I, did, I found this, uh, it, it, I think it's three or four years old, so this may have shifted a little bit. And this is not by money, this is how many Bibles were sold in the U.S. Number one is the New Living Translation. That's the most sold Bible in the United States. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Number two is the New International Version. Number three is the King James. Number four, the New King James Version. Then the English Standard Version. We're probably familiar with those first five, or at least four of the first five. Then there's the Common English Bible, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the New American Standard Bible, the Reign of Valera 1960, which is a uh, Spanish translation with very familiar language to the King James in Spanish. Uh, uses some outdated terms, you might say. And then there's the New International Reader's Version. So you say, well, why are you bringing this up? Because we're going we're gonna to categorize these because I, I want you to know why there's these different translations and maybe which ones might be uh, viewed a little differently than the others, if that makes sense. So I'll try to be clear on that. So there's, there's really, when we're looking at translation, I want us to first start with biblical principles. So if, if I'm going to ask a question about a translation, I've got to start with the Bible, right? So 2 Timothy 3 says this. All Scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. Now, if I've got a translation that was loosely translated, I don't have much confidence in that statement. That's, that's where I'm at. If, if, if their intention behind the way they translated something is not to preserve the words. I don't have any confidence that what I'm reading is the inspired Word of God. And that's where a lot of people are at. They just don't have any confidence because it was just a translation. But not all translations are created equally. 
But we know with confidence that the Bible says about itself, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, I mentioned 2 Peter chapter 1, 19 through 29, uh, 21, and we're, we're not going to take all of our time to read that. That may be on your printout. I, if it is, I'm sure that it's already printed out. I'd tell you what page it's on. Uh, I think it may be around page 6 or somewhere around there, 5 or 6, 4. Okay, I'm way behind. Okay, Van says it's on page 4. So... Second um, Peter chapter 119, the principles that he gives here is that uh, he says what we have is sure. It's sure. And, and that idea of something being sure is he's saying we can be sure that it is what it is, that it is the Word of God. We're sure it's the Word of God. It is steadfast. Uh, it doesn't waver. It's sure. And the reason that he says that it's sure is because it wasn't privately interpreted. And I made a statement earlier, this is not about how we, as readers of God's words, interpret it. That's not his point here. He's saying no prophecy of the scriptures by any private interpretation. Then he says this, for what? Men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So here's, here's his logic. We know what we have is sure because we know where it came from. It came from God. And God delivered it to these men through the Holy Spirit, and they didn't interpret what God said. So, in other words, God didn't fill someone with the Spirit and them go, hmm, what's God mean by that? Well, I think this is what God means by that. And so, like, for instance, Isaiah writes down what he thinks God means. He's saying, that's not what happened. What happened was God moved them, and they wrote down, they said exactly what God told them to say. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, tainted, if you will, by their own thoughts and interpretations. So that's the point of this. So why am I bringing this up? When I'm reading a translation, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a translation where somebody said, okay, we want to make sure that what we interpret here, what we translate rather, is sure. And we're not going to taint the text by inserting our own beliefs and ideas and doctrines. We're just going to try to take it from this language and interpret to this language. Now, are the men that did the translations inspired? I'm not making that argument, so don't get lost on that. I'm not making that argument that they're inspired. What I'm saying is the reason why they knew it was sure is because of where it came from. So a river is purest where? At its source. And so if you taint the river downstream at some point, you may get down to this river, think the water's clean because the source is clean, but somebody tainted it in the middle. They, they, they corrupted it. And so some of these translations, they may have corruption, not necessarily because they used a certain Greek text to interpret it, but because of the way that they translated the Scriptures. So there's two ways of doing this. There's what we call a word-for-word -word translation, which is also called a, a formal equivalence. And then there's a thought-for-thought -thought translation, which is called a dynamic equivalence. Now the word-for-word -word translation, the goal of translating in a word-for-word -word or, a, or a formal equivalence is this. We're going to take it from this language... We're going to translate it to this language, and we're not going to insert any of our opinions or thoughts. That's the goal, right? That's the goal. Now, then there's the dynamic equivalence. And what they're doing is they're going to interpret every verse. Every verse. We're going to make it simple. We're going to make it easy for people to read and understand. The problem is nobody can do that without inserting their bias into the text. And so you've got a lot of these, these uh, translations that they've been tainted by someone's opinion. So the goal of a word-for-word word is to accurately translate the words, whereas the goal of a thought-for-thought thought is to translate the idea of the words. 
And so basically what you're reading, if you have a dynamic equivalence or a thought for thought, is you're reading a text that's already been interpreted for you. That's very dangerous. Very dangerous. So you might say, well, what Bibles do that? Well, we've got to go somewhere else first because I want to talk about the word, uh, the word on the screen here that I've got. Three words. Word for word. Now, there's no such thing as a word for word translation. Uh, if you have a, what's called an emphatic diagolot or an interlinear, then you'll have a word for word like Greek to English. Now, you say, what do you mean there's no word for word? Okay, so this is Greek. Anybody read Greek? Okay, me neither. Uh, but, but I did take the time to make sure that the right words were in the right order. This is what they were in the Greek. Uh, everybody knows this verse. This is John three sixteen. You know what John three sixteen says, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now let's read that word for word Greek. Here's what it says. Thus for loves the God the world, so that the son of him, the only begotten he gives, that every the one believing into him, no should be perishing, may be having life eternal. That's word for word. And if you had a word for word Greek to English, this is how it would read. And you say, I don't want that. No, I don't either. <laughs> and so what did they do? They, they translated the words, each word, word for word, but then they had to restructure the sentences because it's in a different language. Just like if you're speaking English to Spanish. The, the verbs are in different places. The objects are in different places. That's just how languages work. And so, so there's not really technically what we would call a word for word as far as order goes. But what the word for word translations try to do is make sure every time they translate a word, they translate it according to its definition based on its context. Okay, so that's not what you're getting in a thought for thought translation. So uh, now I want you to look at... Oh, no, it's on here. Okay. This is a representation. And, and I got this representation from information of, of, of textual critics who look at, at scriptures and they textually criticize them. They basically look at them and they say, well, how much formal equivalence is in the Bible? That is, how, how much are we, are we extreme toward the word for word or extreme toward the what we would call paraphrasing? And I want to remind you that the number one Bible that is sold in the U.S. is the New Living Translation, and it is the second farthest on the paraphrase size. So are you really shocked? Are you really shocked that, that we are where we are culturally as far as Christianity is concerned with the, the, the most popular Bible is one of the most loosely translated? I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. And it may not be because people aren't reading their Bible. It may be that people are reading a Bible that has been corrupted by man's ideas and thoughts and ideology and their interpretations of Scripture. And so again, this is a representation of things. Uh, don't get hung up on this. But I just want you to see that, that just because one's a formal equivalent and one is not a formal equivalent, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have the same amount of word-for-word -word or paraphrasal. And so again, not all translations are created equal. So someone might look up here and go, well, the New American Standard's way over there, so, so maybe that's the one I need to read. Well, may, maybe you could read that. I've studied that. I, I, I've, I study out of the New American Standard quite a bit. I think it's a good translation. However, you also need to understand how textual critics work. And what they're doing is they're saying, we're measuring the accuracy of literal definition to English word. They're not saying everything, all the phrases were interpreted correctly. I mean, again, you'd have to have a lot of interpretation in, in, in doing that type of criticism. So they're not saying, well, you know, 
Every verse in the New American Standard is translated better than every verse in the King James. That's, that's not the point here. The point is, as they're looking at how Greek words were translated to English words, they're looking at the literal definitions and saying, did they literally define every English word comparative to the Greek word? I hope all that information I've given you is not super confusing. But here's the simple application of it. If you're looking for truth, are you going to go to a dynamic equivalent? Are you going to go to a thought-for-thought translation? I hope by this point you're going, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, here's the other question. Are they evil? Are they evil? Okay, I was, I was told that. You know, I, I, I was told that the New International Version is evil. That's what I was told. Well, I don't think it's evil. Any more than I would think that if I pick up a commentary, that a commentary is evil. But here's something to think about. I don't believe that the NIV is evil, but I'm not going to use it for my personal study. And it's certainly not going to be the one translation that I would use for personal study. I don't view it as a translation because it's not a translation. It's a commentary on the Bible is what it is. It's a commentary disguised as a translation. So if I have that view of it, I can still find some use in the NIV as a commentary, but it's really not a translation. A translation is the formal equivalent, the, thought, the, the, the word for word side of things. These other things, it's a little deceiving because it's really not a translation. It's just, they're, they're really focused on making it as simple to understand as possible. So, I hope that's clear. I hope that people understand that. And if not, we'll talk about it a little more later. All right. A little bit more time. Okay. Not to be redundant. But context, context, context. When you're doing Bible study, this is number one. This is number one. Context is king. If... Again, if, if you have the same word used in multiple verses, it does not mean that those verses are all teaching the same thing. You have to read around it. You have to ask the right questions. I've got all these questions on your printout. And as you're reading the Bible and you're studying, before you even start a book, before you even start a book, ask some questions. I had a guy tell me one time, he was my neighbor. We talked about the Bible. Uh, quite a bit and one of the things he told me one day he said you know I just find that when I have a problem I just take a Bible and I put it on its binder and I just let it open and it falls open and I start reading and I find the solution to my problem well, of course you do <laughs> you know what we call that it, it's, it's kind of a mental hypnotism is what it is because you go all right I believe this is how it works, and so I'm going to find something in this text that fits my problem. And what they do is they don't find something in the text in its context that really fits their problem. They're searching to find something that's related to what's already their problem. And now you're tainting the text with your own problems. Well, that's not a good hermeneutic. You've got to read and ask the right questions. And so if you're going to read a book, here's some questions that you need to ask. Number one, who is talking? Who is talking? That is so important. Who is talking? We're going to get back to that. Number two, who's being talked to? Who's being spoken to? For instance, am I reading a letter that is addressing a specific audience of people? This is very important in the New Testament. Very important. And we're going to dive into this here in a moment. Look at some examples of why this is very important. Is it a letter to a church? You know, not all of the letters that are written in the New Testament are letters to a church. Some are to an individual. 
you know, you've got Theophilus that's being written to, which, which I think that Theophilus and, and the fact that they're inspired and they're preserved for us means that they apply to all of us, don't you? There's a reason why God had those things inspired and preserved for as long as he did. They're, they're written to us. And so it may not necessarily affect you a lot by going, well, you know, this is written to Theophilus, so I, they probably don't apply to me. Well, well, of course it applies to us because he's giving us an inspired record of history. And, and in, the, in, the, in, the, uh, in light of Luke's gospel, when he writes to Theophilus, what is he talking about? The gospel of Christ. How can those things not apply to us? So don't throw it out because you go, oh, well, it's written to Theophilus, so it doesn't apply to me. But there are instances where you do have to understand there are things that are written to specific individuals that do not apply to us. Now, is that in the New Testament? No, not in the New Testament. But, but, but sometimes we may get confused about that. So we're going to talk about that in a moment. Why is it important to understand who's being spoken to? Is it written to a church? Is it written to an individual? Uh, what is the flow of thought? That, that's very important when you're viewing context. And, and what I mean by that is, uh, I think it's dangerous to go, and I'm going to give you an example of this because it's probably something we're all familiar with. Uh, someone who believes that faith only will save you will often quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And so, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, that'll be quoted to you. Now, if somebody quotes that to me, I'm going I'm to tell you what I do. I ask, okay, number one, um, I'd love to study about that, but I want to ask you a question. Uh, who are the Ephesians? That's my first question. And most of the time I get a blank look because they, they don't know who the Ephesians are. Uh, well, why is that important? It's very important to understanding what Paul means in the middle of a letter when he makes that statement. Okay, number one, what, were they bo what would somebody be boasting about? That's another question. Number two, is there anything you know about Ephesus and where the Ephesians live that might help us understand why Paul says some of the things that he does in this book? I'm not trying to disregard the verse. I'm trying to get them to think, maybe you don't know everything that you're saying you know about this verse and we need to dig into it further. I'm trying to get a Bible study is what I'm trying to do so we can actually answer those questions. Because, number one, if you don't read the first chapter, why are you going to assume you know about what's in the second chapter? So that's the other question I ask is, do you know what's in chapter one? And most of the time they don't. They just know those two verses, verses 8 and 9 in Ephesians 2, because they've been taught that tactic to combat anybody who believes in baptism. And once we look through the letter and we study the, book, the, the letter that's written to Ephesus, people get a real good, quick understanding that Paul wasn't saying you're not saved by baptism. That has nothing to do with what he's teaching there. But you've got to ask the right questions and understand all the background that helps, us under, that helps us understand the flow of thought and what's being taught. What is the purpose of this book? Why is he writing this book to these people about this specific issue? So that's our next one. Why was the book written? And then history. Maybe it's a book of history. Uh, so you read through, say, First and Second Samuel. Well, that's history, right? It's telling us stories about what happened. It's not a book of law, whereas Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy, they're, they're books of law, right? You, you have some history mixed into Deuteronomy, uh, but you're reading books of law. Well, you know, sometimes the the, the writers may refer to Genesis as the law. Jesus did that at times as he was talking to them. The law, what he's referring to is the first five books of the Bible that Moses wrote. And so being able to discern that, you know, 
what really constitutes the law of Moses, that is the law that was based on the Ten Commandments, and then the general usage of the word law uh, that Jesus sometimes used when he may quote from Genesis, because that's caused people some problems. They'll go, well, Genesis wasn't the law of Moses. Well, he didn't say the law of Moses. He said the law, because that's the way they looked at it. Uh, so, there, again, there's different usages of the same English word. And, and some books are history. They're not law. We're going to talk about the Proverbs later and, and what that is, that the Proverbs is not meant to be law. It's meant to be something different from that. A really, really important question that's going to come into play a little bit later is, is this a book of prophecy? That's drastic, drastically going to change how you're viewing the book because it's going to answer a, a very important question. That is, should I take everything that I'm reading in this book to be literal? And so I, I didn't know this. And so I'm young and I'm zealous to read the Bible and I'm reading through Revelation. And I get to this point where he's talking about these creatures that had uh, the mouth of a lion and and breathing fire, and had a, you know, and I'm going, man, this is scary stuff. Well, I didn't realize that was all symbolic. I, I thought, man, there's going to come a time when these creatures are going to fly through the sky. So, you know, that frightened me as a young boy. And, and, and uh, to understand some of those things, you have to understand how prophecy works in the Bible. And we're, we're going to get to that a little bit later, but I just want to introduce the idea. So, not all scriptures apply to all men. So the purpose of asking all these questions is because of this principle right here. Not all scriptures apply to all men. Some commands are not meant to be observed today. Some examples are not meant to be observed or followed today. I'm just going to give you one example real quick. Genesis 22.2 Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Does that tell us right there it's important to know who's being spoken to? If, if we read this, if we say all scripture applies to all men. Well, why haven't you taken and burned your sons? Because that was said to a specific per, uh, person about a specific thing, wasn't it? We all know that. So if we know this about Abraham, we ought to understand that there are other times when God said something to a specific individual that doesn't apply to us. It doesn't apply to us. And where that really relates to us in today and looking at the New Testament is when we're viewing certain statements that may have been given to the apostles, for instance, about things Jesus was going to do for the apostles. Make sure that he's, ta that he's talking generally and not just to the apostles. Because there's times, for instance, when he says, I'm going to send the promise of the Spirit that my Father's promised, and he's going to reveal to you all things whatsoever I've said unto you and remind you of everything I said in your presence and reveal to you all truth. Well, has he done that for us? Yes, through the Holy Word. But don't think that that's a general promise where God's going to inspire you and so you just walk around and you just wait for God to reveal something to you. People live their life that way. You know why? Because they don't know that that was, a, that was not a general statement. It was something that was directly said to specific people of the time. That also is important when we're looking at the evangelistic letters. So if you go into 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and, and the book of Titus, those are written specifically to an evangelist. And while there are general principles in there, some of the things are directly relating to an evangelist's work. And so they don't generally apply to every person. You know, for instance, not everybody has the authority to ordain elders. That was specifically given, the responsibility was specifically given to evangelists. And so just keep in mind that that's a very important concept to understand. Not every scripture applies to all men. 
And I'm going to go ahead and stop right there before we dive into historical context. So I feel like I'm flying. So um, anything that I did not clarify, again, either write it down on an index card or ask your question. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And number two, I may not have the answer to all the questions. So uh, we'll just open the floor to the men to ask questions one at a time. Uh, go ahead. Jay. Uh, yes, I, it's probably around six. Six and seven. Six and seven. There may be, but I'm, I'm not aware. I, I, I spent an entire winter studying translations, and uh, from a culmination of all the information, that's, that's, that's my diagram. Uh, I, I made that diagram. I should have mentioned that. I made that diagram on the translations based on a, a large collection of information that I was able to attain from multiple sources. The, the, they don't disagree much. But like there's some differences on how do we define a formal equivalent, how do we define a dynamic equivalent. And so some of them are a mixture of the two. Like you see the Reign of Valera is on the other side, actually on the other side of one that's... And so some of that, again, is just how they define things. So, Titus. Which translation would you suggest you use personally? Um, this is just a personal suggestion. I... When I study, I have, I have a, what's called a parallel on my eSword, on my iPad. And so what I have up is I've got the King James Plus, which is the King James with the Strong's numbers. And then I've got the New King James next to that one. And then I've got the New American Standard and the ESV. And I, I read all four. I don't necessarily, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that the ESV is, um, I don't think it's necessarily equivalent if I can say it that way, to the accuracy of the other three. And I'll give you a reason why. Uh, I, this is a personal preference, but I don't like that the ESV doesn't have certain things italicized. And, and, I, and I forgot to bring that up, and I apologize for that. I should have brought that up. When you're reading a translation of the Bible, um, certain words will be somewhat gray in some translations and italicized, that is, the words are slanted. And what that is telling you is that these were not in the original language. They weren't in the Hebrew or the Greek. That the translators added those words to help clarify a sentence because of the way that we talk in English. So, you know, they may not use articles at times, and those may be in the text and say, this was added. So, because the ESV doesn't have any of the words italicized, I guess that's a personal gripe. However, if I'm studying parallel, that doesn't really affect me because the other three do. So, if I see something in the ESV and it's next to the other three, I can see which words were and weren't added by the translation. But I have found that to be helpful for several reasons, to study multiple translations side by side. And I use those four because in, in my study, what I have determined is those four are, are the most accurate. And you can get back to like some of the old translations like Wycliffe and uh, Tyndale, and they're like from the 1600s and 1500s. As far as word accuracy, those are probably up there with the King James and New King James. However, they didn't use all the same consonants that we do, and so sometimes an S is not an S, it's an F. And that's just confusing to me. So, you know, while they're accurate, I just don't, I don't find them very helpful. 
Um, the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, and the English Standard. Uh, I also like the American Standard. It's a little bit older. Um, it's got more of the language that's similar, that's poetic, similar to the King James. And so it has a lot of the older usage of language. Uh, I just haven't really found it to be maybe superior to the New American Standard or the King James, so I just don't use it that often. So, but those are the four that I primarily use. Um, and what I have found is that sometimes that, that makes me study more. Because, like, say I'm reading something in the King James and New King James, and then I see that it's translated differently in the New American Standard and the English Standard. Well, that makes me want to dive into the text and go, okay, why did they translate it different? And so I, that, that makes me do a little Greek study. And, uh, and sometimes I've found that to be helpful, not just in that it makes me go, oh, well, that was translated differently, but also I go, oh, that was translated correctly. And, and it was different from the way that it read that I'd always been accustomed to. And I haven't seen that a lot. But, but I have seen that in certain cases. Is the New American Standard a revision of the American Standard? Yes, sir. It, it is a revision, and, and the way they do revisions is different because sometimes a revision may just be, we're going to look at this and we're not going to even necessarily reference the Greek. We're just going to revise this into a more modern language. Uh, the New American Standard is not that way. They, they actually go back to the Hebrew and Greek. And most of your Hebrew stuff is pretty close in, most, uh, in almost all your formal translations. The New American Standard would not only look at the American Standard and try to update it, though, is my point. They would also go back to the Hebrew and the Greek and make sure that when they update it, that they're doing it correctly. So there's two things that they're looking at. Is that exactly the same as King James and New King James? Yes, it is. Same it is. It is. Now, now anytime you revise a translation... You're also going to have a bias to be somewhat loyal to the translation. And what I mean by that is because you're updating a, a specific translation, there may be certain words that you just don't, you don't translate differently because it was already translated that way. And so, and so you still may come across a word. My point is, is you may come across a word in a more modern translation that you may say, well, we don't use that word that way. Well, that's because they, they didn't really feel like it was necessary to update that word in that time that they translated it. So... So you still may come across some old words at times, even in the new translation. You go, I'm not sure I know what that means. And again, that's why it's important to have a Strong's or some type of lexicon that you can look at and refer to. I, I would start with a study on the importance of truth. That's where I'd start. And, and I, I will tell you that I will allow them to use their paraphrase versions while we're doing that. And, and I do that for a reason, because I want them to be exposed to the differences firsthand. And so if we're looking through there, and they may say, well, why, why is this one translated this way? And I'll say, well, let's go look at the original language and see maybe if, if your translation's better. And about 95% of the time we go look at it and they go, well, that's not right. And so they're, they're, they're actually, it's not an argument, it's not a debate like, well, my version's better than your version. You're allowing them to actually see, okay, this, this is not good. So I, I think that's the best way to go about it is just you study with them on the importance of truth, on the importance of, of um, God's word not being perverted or tainted. And I would go through things like in the New Testament where that happened. 
uh, where he would talk about doctrines being corrupted and how, the, how that affected the unity of the church and not only the unity of the church, but you know, whether or not people believe they were saved, like in the Galatian letter where he says, you know, you perverted the gospel of Christ. Well, I, I just try to reason and logic with them that way and then let them use their paraphrase and let them see for themselves. I, I probably wouldn't do what we're doing today, honestly. I mean, this, this, I'm doing this, and I realize that some of this is probably over, especially some of the young people's heads. There, maybe it is. I don't want to assume that. But, but I'm doing this because we do, we do have a, a, you know, a plethora, for lack of a better word, of, of maturity levels here. And I know some, some people... Uh, are probably interested in some of this, and I think that it's good information to have. So, yes, sir. That was very subjective, but you talked about the rain coming down and giving its uh, nutrients and whatnot in terms of kids. What would be the recommendation you would give on a translation starting kids off with? I gave my kids New King James. Um, I won't say that's without bias. <laughs> uh, I. Most of my memory work has been done in the King James anytime I quote a scripture. Even though I probably read the New King James more now, um, all my memory works in the King James. I like the language. It's familiar to me. And, and, I, and I, I have just found it to be very reliable. I don't really believe that... I'm not saying that every word is translated correctly. That's not my point in saying that because... You know, if, if we're honest, there's even some words like the word Easter in the book of Acts that are mistranslated. And, and I'm talking about in the King James, the word Easter. But I will tell you, everybody, I want, I want to make sure about this. The, uh, the differences in all the formal equivalent translations are so minute that if you're studying those side by side, there is no way that you would ever come up with a different belief or practice in relation to the authority of God. And, and, and that doesn't mean that every single verse is translated correctly. What it means is this. Let's, uh, and I was very nitpicky about this at one time. Because Colossians 2, I think uh, 14, is a very important verse in understanding the old law. And I think we're going to talk about that later. But, but the way that it's translated in the King James and the New King James is something like blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. And those two words, handwriting and ordinances... If you look them up in the Greek, it means written law. That's really easy to understand. And so like the New American Standard and the English Standard, they translate those verses, canceling the record of debt that was against us. And, and there's just no way for me to view the Greek and view those, those, that phrase and say, that's a good translation of those words, because it, it never means that. It does, debt would never be in that. Okay, And so I, there's places like that where I go, well, if that verse is translated wrong, then let's just throw the whole translation out. That's, that was kind of my attitude. And then I thought, well, I wonder what all the other verses in the English Standard and American Standard, how they're translated in regard to the old law being done away with. Well, what I found was every other verse in the New Testament taught that the old law was done away. It was just that one verse that was translated a little differently. And again, if I'm studying all four of those side by side, I'm being exposed to the right thing. Now, someone might say, well, that could be dangerous. You might read that in another translation. And so that's why I'm going to give you one more recommendation. And that's don't ever study alone all the time. Don't ever study alone all the time. And so what I'm saying is if you're questioning something, call your brother. Call your elders. Call, call somebody that you, that you know and ask them. And, 
And, and maybe you call somebody else after that. I still do that. I do that all the time. If I'm having trouble with the passage, I, I've got a text group with 10 guys in it, and I send them a text, and I say, hey, what, is, what do you all think about this verse? And, and I'll get a bunch of different explanations of the verse. And it's helpful. Right. If your answer different with versions like the New World translation, or versions that you know are specifically tailored the, to a denomination. Yes, and, and the reason why is because, well, I, I won't say that I won't let them use their, their translation at first. Like the New World. It, yes, it's, it's going to depend. But the conversation is going to be very different. Because we have, we, with the other way, I want them to understand the importance of truth. In this instance, I want them to understand the importance of truth. But I also want them to understand that you're holding a paraphrase, which is obviously someone had the idea. We need to make this simple and give it to the people and let the people, so they can understand it. The other one's not. You're, you're starting with a doctrine. You're starting with a faith. And then you're rewriting the Bible to basically conform to your faith. And so what I would do, and, and I, I'm pr probably not the best person to do New World Translation because I haven't devoted a ton of study because I don't run into Jehovah's Witnesses very often, to be honest. Uh, I think I've been blacklisted. They don't come to my house. I'll tell you that. So I don't study with a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses. But I know we did several years ago. And, and did you do the ultimate truth study with them? Is that what you did? And then talk to them about the translation and why that's different? Because I remember, I remember I was here, and I remember Monty was with you, and he came back, and he was telling me about it, and he said, he said it was so great to see Monty say, this is not right. And then for her to take all the material that she had been given and give it back to the people that gave it to her and tell them it's not right. And so it, it's, it's really the same tactic. If you, I don't want to call it, tactic almost sounds like a, a war term, but having a plan going into a situation like that is important, but it's, but it's not going to look totally different because the, the whole point is to get them to understand the purpose um, for trying to understand what's only been given by God, what's, what we know to be true, and then how men have perverted that. So that probably wasn't a great answer to your question. I apologize for that, but I... I Again, I don't know. Van would probably have some more insight because he's obviously done that and had some level of success in, in someone who was reading the New World Translation. Explain a little bit about these translations that are geared to different denominations. I'm not sure everybody here is. Okay. Uh, so the one that, that Mitch brought up is the New World Translation, and that is, that is a translation that is specifically for the Jehovah Witness faith. And... So there's going to be, they have specific beliefs about whether or not Christ was deity, whether or not he was resurrected in the flesh. And so you go read a lot of the verses where in a regular Bible would confirm those things. Theirs are different. They're, they're translated differently. Okay. Uh, there might be verses translated differently about the virgin birth. And, and so what you've got is you've got these people who they have this faith and then they'll, they'll write this uh, translation. And, and I think that's very deceiving. Because what you're doing is you're building confidence in people's minds based on what you know to not be true. That there's, there's no reason to translate it. Jay and I had that a few years ago. We were studying with some folks in Clarendon. And they had been told 
that the only translation that was accurate was the American English New Testament. And so me and Jay talked about it. We thought, well, if we're going to stay with these people, let's go buy that New Testament. So I got online, 300 bucks for this translation that, oh, by the way, was started by the founder of that religion, and it's the only one that exists, and that's the only way to know the truth. I mean, it's a scam. And so, well, and then we got to, we, we got to looking at it, and sure enough, they weren't very good at their scam because all the verses we looked at in the New Testament actually confirmed that the law of Moses was done away with, and that was the whole point of contention. So, so, so there are, those do exist out there, and there's, there's not a ton of them. But I'll tell you, it's gotten just terrible. It's gotten terrible. There's one called the Queen James Version. I probably don't have to explain to you what the intent is. There's, there's new versions of the Bible that have removed all of the gender specifics. All of the gender specifics. So, you know, th- just be careful. I'm telling you, there are safe translations. There, there are translations that need to be viewed as a commentary. And then there's translations that you just don't even need to give your attention to at all. They, you, they just don't deserve the time of day. I do. Um, I, I will use the English Standard, New American Standard. It's not very often. And, and usually the only time I do that is if I, if I have, through study, believed that the way that they translated something is much clearer. If it's, if it's not like something drastic, I mean, I just don't see the point. Because if, if, they're, if they're both translated very similarly, and I'm already using New King James, and that's what people are familiar with, well, why would I use a different one just to use something different? Because I can explain to you what it means out of the New King James without having to use the English Standard or the New American Standard. And I, I, don't, I don't know that I have hardly any out of the English Standard. Um, the one from Acts 17 may have been from the English Standard. I, I, it was either English Standard or New American Standard. Um, and again, I use that because the idea of eagerness, I, I think, is more in line with what the Greek word means. Um, I will give you one where I think it's important. And... Uh, this might provoke some discussion later. First uh, Peter chapter three verse twenty one, um, where it, Peter connects the idea of salvation to baptism. One of the words that's translated there is the word answer, and so the verse reads, um, "Whereunto also baptism doth also now save you, uh, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God." And I actually use the New American Standard when I teach that verse, and it's because the word answer was mistranslated. Um, And if you look at the Greek and you look at even how that word's used all throughout the New Testament, it actually means an inquiring or an asking for, not an answer to. And I believe that's more in line with what Peter's teaching as well, because if you look at the idea, the way it's translated is an appeal to God for a good conscience, which is very similar to the idea of calling on the name of the Lord. And, and I found that to be very effective in teaching people who hold the uh, baptism as a work doctrine or belief. Because if I'm appealing to God to cleanse my conscience, asking God to cleanse my conscience, which is what the Greek actually says, that makes more sense to me than, than the other way that that's translated. So there may be instances like that, but they're rare that I, that I would use that. I wouldn't do it just for the sake of doing it. I don't think that's helpful.
Okay, if, if anybody thinks of another question, I believe there's some index cards back here on the table. Write those down, and again, set them up here on the table, and uh, we'll try to get to that in the afternoon session. So we're going to take a break for lunch. How long? Short? I'll be back at 1 o'clock. Okay. All right. Sorry I delved into your lunchtime about six minutes. 1 o'clock. Be back at 1 o'clock. us if he would to come forward and word a dismissal prayer for us. <clears throat> Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we're so thankful for this time that we can come and and to study your word and study how to better delve into it and and Father, to just be better for it, that when we go out into this world and help others by it, we know where to go to to, to give them the answers, Father, to, to help them to, to know you, Father, and, and to know that that salvation that you offer, what a, <clears throat> what a great blessing that is to us. I'm thankful for Ian. I pray that you just continue to be with him and give him <clears throat> the, the ability to continue to, to present this to us in the way that he has. It's been very helpful, and so thankful to him. And, and the work that he does for you in your kingdom. Father, I pray that you just be with all those who are here. Father, that wherever they go, they come back safely. Father, just continue to be with us as we go through this, <clears throat> this teacher training. We're so thankful to you for, for all these many blessings, Father, and above all, for your son, for what he means to us, for the salvation we have because of, of the perfect sacrifice he made himself on the cross to be for us, Father. I ask that you forgive us of our sins. Finally, in heaven, save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.